Thank you for listening to the Family Perspectives podcast brought to you by the School of Family Life Student Editorial Board. I'm Cambria. And I'm McCall. And today we'll be learning from Dr. Ashley Larson-Gibby and Dr. Adam Rogers. Dr. Ashley Larson-Gibby received her bachelor's degree in sociology from BYU and her master's and PhD in sociology and demography from Penn State. She has two main lines of research. One is focused on adoption and what adoption teaches us about our societal biases surrounding families. Example, who is a fit parent or who is a desirable child. The second is focused on gender ideology and how the ways we view gender shape family processes, outcomes, and experiences. She has worked at BYU as a professor for the past three years and has found this experience deeply meaningful, in large part due to her incredible students and colleagues. Dr. Gibby married her teenage crush, Jordan, and they have two kids, Thomas, four, and Louisa, one, who are very cute and very funny, and I can attest to that. She spends much of her days playing dress-up, building with Legos, going on walks around the neighborhood, and learning an enormous amount about dinosaurs. How do you say that one? Paracerolophus. Paracerolophus is her favorite dinosaur. Dr. Gibby, we're so glad you're here. Thank you. We also have Dr. Rogers here on our podcast today. Dr. Rogers has his PhD in developmental psychology from Arizona State University. He has been on the School of Family Life faculty since 2017, where he studies child and adolescent development with specialization in gender development. He and his wife have three young children, two boys and a girl. In his free time, he enjoys cycling and woodworking. Thanks for being on here with us, Dr. Rogers. Thank you. We're so excited to learn from you both today. Let's go ahead and get started. The theme of our podcast is how to improve your relationship IQ. So we wanted to just ask you both, how can understanding gender improve our relationship IQ? Yeah, I think the value proposition for understanding gender, and when you talk about understanding gender, I think to define it, I think what we're talking about is understanding the ways that men and women and boys and girls might be treated differently through expectations, stereotypes, but also through the systems and institutions in our culture, understanding those differences, where they exist and maybe where they don't exist. I think it really helps us to understand and honor the different perspectives that we may bring into a relationship without necessarily overstating those differences. It can also be true that because of different socializing experiences, for example, we come into a relationship with different ways of communicating or different ways of solving problems different expectations for how to divide labor in our homes, and just being broadly aware of the social forces that give rise to those things can help us to be more understanding without falling into kind of stereotypic portrayals of one another. And they can help us to honor each other's experiences and perspectives, support one another. There's lots of ways to to do that. Gender is one way to kind of sharpen the way that we validate each other, honor each other, and support each other in a relationship. So, Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that there's so much value in understanding things that are different by gender, right? For example, if you're talking, if a woman's talking to her husband about a frustrating interaction and he just said, well, maybe if you phrased it this way or maybe if this happened without understanding that it's very likely that she's just getting treated differently than he would, I think that can cause a really big disconnect and, and cause frustration for people. Or, right, women experience this all the time when they're frustrated with their husbands not being able to communicate in the ways that they do, especially about their feelings. And understanding that socialization or these structures and these ways that that's perpetuated, and that it might not be just because someone's choosing something. 
So yeah, I think there's all these gender differences that we need to understand and that we are operating the world differently. It's impacting us a little bit differently. And there are some gender differences that are due uh, to biology or socialization and all these things. I know that Dr. Levitt here studies sexual arousal, right? And for men, the way that that happens is much more patterned for men. And for women, there's a lot more variety. And I think even understanding that can help us as we navigate our marriages. Oh, we might just be experiencing things a little differently. But I also think that sometimes we really attribute certain things to gender that are not real gender differences, right? When Adam was saying we can overstate these things, sometimes we can stereotype each other or think my spouse is doing this because of their gender or my spouse, something's off with them because they're not doing this and they're this certain gender, so I would expect it. And I think uh, allowing people to be their own individual selves and getting to know them without kind of imposing these preconceived notions on them can just really help us reach true intimacy. I love that. I think it's interesting that it can help going both ways of like, oh, I can understand them and their perspective better, but also not putting those gender stereotypes on them can open up to more intimacy. I appreciated that. Thank you both. We'll learn more about that as we keep going. Our next question is, what are some common gender stereotypes in dating or marriage and how can we overcome those? So many. <laughs> <laughs> They range from, I guess, the humorous to maybe the more like impactful and more significant. But uh, a lot of the stereotypes that I can think of are stereotypes around, for example, like the way we should divide labor in the home. So we have labor around childcare, around household work, around breadwinning, all very important forms of labor in the home. Um, and I think that there are stereotypes about which roles should be whose. And there, like, there's a reason for those stereotypes because there's a historical basis for dividing that labor. And so, right, we can get into a mindset of, well, this is this person's work and that's this person, right? The other person's work. So those stereotypes can kind of dictate our relationships a little bit. There are stereotypes around perceptions of men's and women's different needs. What do men need in a relationship versus women? There are stereotypes surrounding communication styles. I don't know. I'm just trying to list so, yeah. off. So many. <laughs> yeah. so many. And even some of the ones that you're mentioning that might not seem as serious, right? Even this like division of household labor. I think I hear ideas a lot of why does this matter so much? Why are we talking so much about who's doing the housework mm. and who's making money and all of these things? And part of it is that there's a lot of research that it really matters for marriages. Uh, for example, there are several studies that find that as men participate more and more in housework and get closer to equality to what women are doing, marital satisfaction goes up, and that's especially true for women, and divorce ideation goes down, and actual experiences of divorces go down. And so we're seeing that there's something there about um, rejecting just the, you do this because you're a woman, and you do this because you're a man, and, and exploring ways to do it together, or what works for those two particular people that seems to really benefit marriages. And then when you were saying some of them are really serious, I was thinking, so my husband, when we, when I was in my PhD, he was working for a domestic violence center and was helping run these support groups for men who were sexually abused as children. Most of them were like in their fifties and sixties and reporting it for the first time. And a lot of them were saying that part of that is stereotypes that like somehow that threatens your masculinity or that boys and men should enjoy that, but there's no way they can be sexually abused because men are really sexual. And that has obvious implications of if men aren't able to share those experiences and get help, that affects their families now as adults, how they process things, how their attachment styles, all sorts of things. So 
there is a range from it's funny to yeah. it gets serious. And I think even the ones that sometimes we label as funny, we see in research impact marriages pretty. And maybe impact's a strong word because it's more causal, but it's related to to marital outcomes for sure. Yeah. When you say the question about like what, what are common stereotypes, my first thought was, well, there's just so many that it's hard to list those out. And I think... I think my mind approaches a problem in a slightly different way or a slightly different angle, which is if you understand what a stereotype is and you understand the problem of introducing stereotypes into a relationship between two individual people, because by definition, a stereotype is an association that we make about a group of people. So by definition, it's like it's a group based attribution. Now, whether that stereotype is accurate or not, right, some might have some accuracy, a lot of them don't. But when you take a group-based attribution and apply that to an individual, there's just an accuracy there. So the, I guess the fallacy of applying the stereotypes to individuals is you're defining a group by one characteristic or like an average, for example. But we know that if there's an average in a group of people, there's a distribution around that average. And actually, like mathematically, less than 10% of people actually fall on that average. So by definition, right, when you're defining a stereotype as a group-based attribution, but then you're applying it to an individual, there's a 90 plus some odd chance that that person will not be characterized well by that stereotype because they will fall somewhere along that distribution. And that's just for one kind of stereotype. As I bring in more stereotypes about needs, about labor in the home, what are the chances that they're going to meet your expectations on every one of those things? So the way that I think a lot of stereotypes can make it into our relationships is the simple projection of an expectation for something or some behavior or some expression from our partner just because of right their gender, just because they're a man or they're a woman. But mathematically and statistically, it's incredibly unlikely that they're going to meet that expectation just because of how human traits vary between individuals. So there are some stereotypes that may have some basis at a group level. For example, women score higher than men on measures of warmth and like emotional expression. Agreeableness is the personality trait, we call it. But even then, there's a lot more within group variability than there is between. And what that essentially means is that there's a lot more men. Well, there's a lot of men who are more agreeable than women and a lot of women who are less agreeable than most men, despite the fact that there is an average a difference between the averages because almost no one falls along the average. So then again, when you're in a relationship with a single individual who has their own idiosyncratic traits and tendencies and desires and needs, those stereotypes become really uh, not just blunt, but also just really inaccurate, imprecise ways of expecting things out of the relationship. So I was thinking something similar that it's like all about expectations and being in a relationship with someone because you're in love with this idea of what this relationship could be rather than falling in love with a person, which is a much more intimate, satisfying way to do things, but it's also a lot messier because it's not as simple and that person is complex in their own ways. There's a TED Talk by an author whose last name is Adichie. First name's escaping me, which is too bad. But her TED Talk's called uh, The Problem with a Single Story. And in that, she said this phrase that's always stuck with me, that the problems with stereotypes is not that they are inaccurate, but that they are incomplete. Hmm. Right. So, of course, there are some women and some men and, and people of all groups that fit stereotypes because they came from somewhere. And, and also, most of them are just people of all groups are going to fit that stereotype, rather, whether it's applied to them or not. So that maybe that's not the problem. But then if we stop at the stereotype or if we're expecting things or 
being frustrated with our partners because it's not looking how we wanted it to look, our partner is at a real risk of feeling unseen, undervalued, undercut, and, and like they're disappointing you with things that they never agreed to do in the first place. And I think as we let go of those and are able to just see people, that's just a much more intimate experience of instead of trying to force you to mold into this expectation I had when I entered this relationship, I really like the idea of things going like this. Can we work together and get to know each other and get to see each other and build something that's unique to us? And I think just stereotypes get in the way of that and make it really hard for people to share their true selves with their partner when they think they're about to disappoint their partner or when they feel like, oh, you didn't think you married me, but you did. Right. That's tricky. Yeah, that's a really, like you said it a lot better than, I think that's where I was going with it. So thank you for helping me finish the Teamwork. Yeah, it's about, it's about beholding the individual that you are partnered with and that you're a spouse to and, and appreciating them for their idiosyncrasies and supporting them in those different, right, traits and needs and desires rather than expecting that they should be one way or another. And that can be tricky because stereotypes often like operate outside of our awareness. They operate as emotional responses that we may not have a name or a label for. They operate as just expectations that we might not realize is actually a stereotypic portrayal based on a group categorization or an association of characteristics to a group. So then, you know, the issue of how do we become aware of stereotypes is just another issue. But I think, I think that's right. Just understanding that you're with an individual and knowing that individual, coming to know them not just about them, but coming to know them in relationship, like be familiar with them and relate to them consistently and in all the respectful kinds of ways. I think that's yeah, how we navigate that. Yeah. And what a sacred experience, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking of Christ and the atonement and this idea that there's something so sacred and so meaningful about getting to know individual people and their perspectives and their experiences and we're also taught that marriage is one of the best ways to gain celestial qualities. And to me, this all fits really well together of getting to know that person, letting go of preconceived notions and learning to love that person, I just think is really sacred, is a really sacred experience. And because it's a really sacred experience, it's going to be really hard to do. So now that we hopefully, let's say in our relationship, have gotten past these gender stereotypes and we're able to just behold the individual, I like how you said that, Dr. Rogers, in dating or marriage, how can we understand differences and be respectful, gender differences and be respectful of them um, and almost, I guess, use them to our advantage? Like, how can we use that to strengthen our relationships? My best advice here is just listen to people, right? Listen to people who are different from you. Listen to people who have different experiences. And instead of just, just disregarding all of their experiences, which I think we do a lot, right? We all have our own worldviews. And we know from psychological research that when those worldviews get pushed on, we have really physical responses to that. And our brain is going to protect us from such an event where our worldview will come crashing down. And sometimes that makes it really difficult to listen to somebody who's different from you. Because almost always when you do that, your worldview is going to get hit on a little bit. But right, if you can listen to people who are not of the same gender of you, as you and try to understand what their experience is like on like a broad scale, even if you're not in a relationship, just uh, being open to those conversations and, and sincerely listening, not with the intention to disregard or minimize, but trying to understand where they're coming from or what that might be like. I think that that really helps people set it up well when they get into a relationship. And then once you're in a relationship, doing that with your partner, just listening to what's going on. 
in a way where you're trying to understand and be empathetic, not tell them that they're wrong or that they misunderstood. Because although that might be true, and I think that does happen, I think it's more helpful to go in believing them, right? And, and meeting them where they're at. And I think the best thing we can do to understand gender differences is just listen to each other's different experiences. Yeah, it's really similar to kind of my line of thought was communication is really key. And not just skilled communication. Obviously, communication skills are important. But like real, like good faith communication, meaning the listening, the active listening, assuming the best of one another. I don't know. Hopefully you can assume that about your spouse, right? Um, just because acknowledging that like you've had different experiences and and honestly, like some of those experiences might reflect the gender difference. Some of those might reflect an individual difference. Sometimes it's hard to know. And so I think that's, again, why it's just about understanding, listening, communicating in good faith with your partner and knowing that this like your arrangements in the home aren't going to be static either. They're going to be changing over time. So it's not just something that we need to do early in a relationship or in anticipation of marriage, but it's it really is a continuing effort all throughout marriage because individual differences and other gender differences will be evoked by different contexts, different situations. So it really is establishing a culture of good faith, skilled communication, listening, validating. Yeah. Yeah, And allowing each other to evolve. I don't know if this is true of all marriages. Actually, I do know that it is not true of all marriages. To my marriage, not only over time have we evolved, but we've evolved in terms of our awareness of what's us and what's gender um things like oh i didn't realize that most men were experiencing this and i'm experiencing this or on my side the same thing of oh i always thought that was maybe just me but the more i'm listening or researching or learning i'm learning that that's actually a really common experience across women especially women who are um, in similar social positions as me and yeah i think that even that awareness has been has led us to some intimacy too of us saying oh i always thought this was a me problem and then together learning, oh, I think you were really not set up for success there. And being able to support each other in that way has been meaningful. So not only have we evolved in terms of our personalities, which is definitely true, and our preferences and all sorts of things, but even our awareness or the way that we view the world or the way that we view gender and other people's experiences is constantly changing. I think that's really powerful that if we base our relationships or even a friendship, I feel like this applies to, on listening and being willing to grow together, you can. You don't have to be stuck in one place. You can grow and evolve and hopefully work on it together. And that's important in any type of friendship or relationship. So I appreciate that. Our next question then is on a similar wavelength of advice on navigating our different perspectives and how we can do so better. So you mentioned a lot of listening. Are there any other like tips that you've seen effective in your own marriages or your own experience doing research that have been effective at navigating those different perspectives when sometimes they really butt heads. Yeah, I will say that kind of on the opposite side of the coin, I think, and I think both people will be in these different positions at different times. But you've got the listener who's acting in faith or viewing their partner in a really generous way, which I think is really important. But you also need the other person to be really brave and say what they mean and say what they're experiencing, which is really crucial to this. And hopefully you've set up other parts of your relationship to to have that level of trust that you can say what you want to say or what you mean to say. And I think that's really important. There's something, I don't know who this is from, but there's something that like when you're talking about pedagogy of how you teach, that's called step up and step back, step up back and step up. I don't know which one comes first. The idea is that there's some students in the room and in this case, there could be someone in the marriage 
who's really good at communicating what they're thinking and what they're feeling, their perspectives, and, and another person that's just not. And so what they can, they'll ask people to do is if you're someone who shares a lot, my advice is to step back for a minute and just give space for someone else to talk. And if you're someone who's not talking a lot, now I'm asking you to step up and, and share your thoughts. And I think that has to happen in marriage too, of the person is listening and being generous and not taking over and the other person being willing to be brave enough to say what they need to say. So my advice is to practice both of those skills as much as you can. Yeah. And the, and the spirit of practicing both those skills and other both is acting in good faith and listening, but also being able to like forgive because there will always be miscommunication. There will always be misunderstanding. I think that's pretty inevitable. So, you know, another layer of that is being able to be brave, but also being able to forgive when people misunderstand or your partner misunderstands. And then to accept forgiveness when you've misunderstood your partner. Which is its own form of bravery, right? Yeah. Forgiveness is its own kind of bravery. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Those are really great tips and obviously easier said than done. But Yeah, and maybe like an example, I don't know, speaking so abstractly. I tend to speak abstractly. So maybe like a concrete example could be, and this is just because this is a, has been a salient issue in my marriage and our relationship, like early on, especially in our relationship. We've been married for eight years. We still feel like we're relatively new at it in the grand scheme of things, of course. So like growing up when I went to college and university, I approached education and career very differently. The questions that I asked myself about like my education and career horizon were very different than the questions that I have come to realize that my spouse was asking about herself, right? I was asking questions about, can I provide, can I, can I earn a living? Can I feed the mouths in my home? And that's a tremendous pressure, right? To place on somebody. My wife was asking some of those same questions, but with the addition of like, what's the flexibility like in this career? What, like what's work-life balance in this career? Are, are, are companies within this industry good with children? And like, how do I balance childcare? And those are questions that frankly, I never asked when I was going through all my education, because there was an assumption that I had made that childcare was going to be provided inherent to the family situation I'd find myself in. Right. And that's where my wife is asking those questions to herself when she's going through and making decisions about a career. And we have evolved, as Ashley said, to discover that about ourselves. I evolved to realize, wow, that's a lot of pressure that you're experiencing, right? Like that pressure that I felt like I had, there's a different kind of tremendous pressure on a woman who's trying to think about careers and think about childcare and have to balance all those questions that most men, that young men aren't even asking themselves. And she has come to realize that being in a sole provider situation is tremendous pressure too. And just being able to like honor the experiences that each other are having, but also then like that, that empowers us to be able to say, okay, what can I do better to support you in this? Because now I see you now I see that experience. And then that experience is a gendered experience. It wasn't just a difference in our personalities and how we approached it. It's a difference in how, you know, cultural expectations were internalized implicitly and navigated by us. I don't know if that example makes much sense, but. No, it totally does. I love that example too of being able to recognize people's different experiences because when we ignore those, it doesn't solve the problem, but it can help us to move forward. You get to actually see the person. And you mentioned this, that helps create intimacy that strengthens your relationship, which again is so, so, so important. I appreciate that. 
that actually sets us up really well for our next question for you. How can we be more intentional about being equally partnered in relationships? Because like you just mentioned, that might look different depending on circumstance and just where you're at. So what advice do you have about how can we make sure we're, we're both pulling our own weight in a relationship? So uh, there's a phrase in the family proclamation that I love. So again, I'm kind of thinking about this example of the way that we divide labor in our homes, caregiving, household labor, and, and like breadwinning work providing. There's a phrase that we've heard like oftentimes at different points in our like history, I guess. You've heard phrases, things like separate but equal, where the idea is like men and women have separate work, but they're equal. And then there's been pushback to say, no, it's not equal until it's the same. And the phrase that I really like in the family proclamation is that in these roles, partners are, or spouses are obligated to support each other as equal partners or close to that, right? It's a much more active phrasing of that. It's not a state. It's a way of being with one another. And so basically what it comes down to, I think the way I think about it is like, instead of trying to find the right division of labor in this example, it's about these are all important labors that need to happen. How can we be supportive of one another? And it's going to probably change over time. I don't, in my experience, like in my own marriage, like our the way we've divided has changed sometimes dramatically, multiple times a year. Like, and it's just about being able to step in and support all along the way. So there is an experience that I had early in our marriage when I think of that I was taking a lot of guidance from some of these like stereotypic traditions. Meaning that, so like I would, I would be eager to help around the house and eager to help in our, I think we had just had our first kid. I was eager to help in all those things, but I was always taking, I was allowing my wife to take the lead. I was following her lead in all of these things. And that was kind of the habit that I had gotten into was I want to support you, but right, I'm going to follow your lead. And one day she just said, the thing that's going to help me the most is just seeing things that need to get done and just doing them. And that switched my mindset from I'm going to support her in this in this work to uh, this is this is my work too, right? It, it, it provide like there's an ownership there that needed to happen, and so that changed my mindset to all the labor that happens in the household, which is it's not her work or my work; it's our work, and we support each other as equal partners. And that was a really important realization early on, and I'm glad that I had it because, like I said, we have. Our, our life and the way our life has taken us and our situation, we've had to lean into different forms of labor here and there. One of us has had to lead out here, the other there. And just trying to channel that mindset of we're both stewards, we're both owners of this labor. What can we do to support each other as equal partners, even though it may not land equally at all phases of our relationship? It's just about, I guess, being anxiously engaged with all of that. Yeah. And that so. reminds me so. My husband and I got the cool opportunity to write a chapter on equal partnership and marriage for the upcoming um, SFL 200 textbook. And in that, we read um, some passages from a book by Boyd K. Packer, where he essentially says, sometimes men think that housework is part of nurturing in the family proclamation, mm -hmm. but there's no doctrinal basis for that. Like housework is your work too. We're not talking about housework. When we're saying nurturing and you should clean your house, essentially. And I found that powerful too. Uh, like this idea that you have of, oh, I thought it was her work. And, and like, I think being really aware of 
sometimes will say, I think that this is her work because the gospel has told me that there are important gender differences and that this is one of them. And I think being really critical about, is that the thing the gospel told you was a sacred difference or is that something you kind of attached meaning to, but isn't actually doctrine, right? Is more cultural. And, and what could that mean? And just being really open and flexible to that idea and to that personal revelation of praying and saying, can you help me figure out what differences I really do need to honor, um, especially in my own marriage, and, and what things I can be more flexible about, I think is a really worthwhile thing to do. I also think that there's just something to not organizing things on gender as like the passive, that's what we should just do. I think there's something really powerful about being intentional and doing things on purpose and organizing things by gender is just very much going with the flow. Society is going to help you with that. We have roles, we have scripts, we know what to do, but allowing yourself to say, actually, that's been really problematic for actually all of human history that we've done this. We, we know through research that has not really always gone very well. And instead, can we imagine a way to do this in our marriage that feels good for both of us and be open and flexible to changing that over time? So I think part of that includes not assuming certain things should happen solely because of gender, but instead talking to each other about hopes and dreams and expectations and struggles and pressures and coming up with a plan together that feels good enough for everybody, right? Boy K. Parker also was saying that, or maybe this was Gordon B. Hinckley. Well, Somebody I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to all, to whoever I am forgetting to quote, but this idea that there needs to be room for, it was Gordon B. Hinckley, there needs to be room for everyone's hopes and dreams in a marriage for both people's. And I think being aware of that, can you reflect on your own marriage and say, are my hopes and dreams, is there room here for them? And then think of your spouse. Was there, is there also room for theirs? And then maybe talking to them about if they would answer similarly. And again, being just prayerful and mindful of, are we just doing things because we think that they should happen by gender? Or do we have enough room and intimacy and bravery, right? Praying for strength that you can learn this about yourself, what you need and what you want and be able to communicate that. And then can you break things down in that way where you're really honoring? I like when you said you can behold this person, right? Can you like behold your spouse, can you behold your marriage and like really see it and be open to, to being flexible there and changing things up if they're not working. Let's do things on purpose. So again, empowering to be intentional. Like we're doing this on purpose and we're figuring out what works best for us right now because that's going to change, like you mentioned. And it's going to look different from relation to relationship to relationship so it's very much a a team effort and we're going to do what is going to be best for us right now i like that yeah and speaking of that there's no need to judge other couples because they do it differently than you that is an insane thing to think yes because not only will it be different couple to couple or it's across time in the same couple Mm -hmm. it's going to look different it's going to look different across every relationship and it's going to look different across cultures and none of that if you look at our doctrine there's not a lot saying like culturally this is exactly what you should do instead there's some room here of as long as we uphold these really sacred principles there are a lot of ways to enact this and it's not our job to punish others that we think might be doing it wrong and i think we do that a lot out of insecurity right i see this a lot with mothers like sometimes i'll hear working moms say things like stay at home moms must be so bored and i really think that's a projection of them saying i'm kind of insecure that i'm working and if i'm doing it right they have to be doing it wrong because if they're right then i'm wrong right and then you hear stay-at-home moms saying other things like that too, right? Like, oh, the working mom's like missing everything or someone else is raising her child. And again, I think it's somebody saying, I gave up a lot to do the sacred responsibility of motherhood. And if I didn't have to, if she's also right, then what does that mean? And so it's just easier to just say, 
that couple's wrong because it's different from how we did it. And instead, I think, just like forget all of that. <laughs> just realize that people are doing the best they can. They probably got different revelation from you. They have different personalities, different circumstances. And there are a lot of right ways to live. Just like it's wonderful to be a stay-at-home mother and it's meaningful. And I don't know how anyone thinks that they're bored if they've ever spent time with a child. <laughs> There's no way, right? Um, that always confuses me. I'm never bored with my kids. That's not an experience I've had. And um, like, and working is fine too. Or like if it is more traditional in how you divide labor, but that's working for you. There's no need to feel shame about that. And if you're not, because it wasn't working for you, fine, right? That's all. These are all valid ways to live. I love that too, treating your relationship in a very intentional way and making sure that it's like your sacred space and you're not like infringing on other people's sacred spaces on how they're deciding to do it. And also like recognizing that like, as we're more intentional, like if we were not going into just relationship autopilot where like gender just becomes like the default determining factor in how we do things i think can like what you're saying bring a lot more fulfillment in our relationships mm -hmm. so here that kind of leads us into another question of what can we do to make sure that these stereotypes don't dictate our relationships and specifically too on how that affects children and their experience in, in the home and in the family one, so we're talking about division of labor a lot, which makes sense. A lot of gender scholars focus on division of labor because it's so gendered. And by division of labor, we mean like who performs what tasks at home? Whose job is it to do the dishes? Whose job is it to mow the lawn? Whose job is it to provide money? Um, and how we divide those things scholars refer to as the division of labor in a home. And it's so gendered and it's relatively easy to measure. So that's why scholars like to focus on it a lot, right? <laughs> And um, one thing we know is that across couples and cultures, this is like always true, is that women do more housework than men and girls do more housework than boys. And this is even true in couples. On average, there are exceptions to all of this. But on, if you're looking at averages, even in couples where the woman is making 100% of the income and the man is making 0%, on average, women are going to do more housework. This is true in India. This is true in Sweden. <laughs> this is true in the United States. And so we know that this is true. And what's also neat about this is that they've like they a lot of people have studied and I have also studied what motivates boys to do housework. And one of the most consistent findings is that rather than mothers' behaviors or even the way people think about gender, it's fathers' behaviors that is the most consistently related to boys doing housework or men doing housework when they're adults, uh, what their fathers did when they were kids. And this modeling of, of is this part of being a man? And as I'm learning. As I'm learning um, how to be a man, I'm looking towards this one very specific person. And that's really powerful. And other scholars have noted that women, if you're thinking of the gender revolution, right? so many women have entered the workforce, which used to be defined as, as a very masculine task, especially among some groups, right? If we're thinking about white, middle class, and upper class women, that was for sure the case. And then, especially after World War II, they started like infiltrating the public sphere for all sorts of reasons. And... Then everyone thought the second part of the gender revolution, and by everyone, I mean not everyone, but certain scholars who study this, <laughs> would be for men to like really engage in the private sphere in what women's work was when we divided it in this way. And men have not done that as widely or as enthusiastically. It's much slower progress. It's kind of going a lot more slowly than women's um, coming into the workforce. And we have no time to talk about all that today because it's so complicated and there's so much nuance to why that's happening. But one way people have thought about it, and that sometimes I think about it, is that like preceding all these women going into the workforce, we expanded access to education, especially secondary education, and started to make it mandatory for children to get schooling, which just fully prepared women with skills to enter the workforce. 
but boys have never gotten that training. If Because we already know boys do way less housework than girls, just like women do more than men. And so some scholars will say, it's not just that men don't care, but by the time they get into that marriage, who has been trained to look for the mess and see it and be bothered by it and held accountable to it? Who has the skills? Who can sweep faster? Who knows how to do the dishes? Who doesn't have to ask questions? And so by the time you get into marriage for a lot of people, there's the skill set is different by gender, which sometimes dictates it. And so I think thinking through that of what are the skills you need to give your girls and your boys so that they have more options in their life where they can show up in their marriages in meaningful ways. So I guess what I'm saying is make your boys clean. <laughs> <laughs> that was the take yeah. that. It's the only thing that really matters. Yeah. To clean, clean their room. And I, I like that because it, it, the emphasis, again, is on individuals. So the, the tricky thing about like stereotypes is that because they are often so familiar in our like collective psyche that when we try to do all the overwhelming tasks of marriage and parenting, it provides like a very familiar script that we can follow. The problem is that that script doesn't often resonate with the individuals that we're parenting or that we're relating to. So I think the emphasis is on broadening, for example, like when you ask about children helping broaden children's experiences. So we know that one of the most gender stereotyped areas in parenting is around play. Kids' toys are are now, they believe, kids' toys currently are more gender stereotyped than they've ever been. And that's partly because that's what markets and that's what sells. I mean, that should be relatable if you go to a toy store, there's pink aisle and then every other aisle. The challenge is that parents will very readily give their children toys that support or, or that are typical of their child's gender, like boy toys for boys and girl toys. For, and these, and those are good. And those are important experiences for kids to have. But they're like research is very clearly showing that there's value when we broaden those experiences to not just include the gender stereotyped toys, meaning boy toys for boys, but also providing a broad range of toys because toys are about development and growth and play and activities are about development and growth. And when we gender those things, we're limiting development and growth in gender-typed ways. Boy toys, research has shown that boy toys are much more geared toward physical activity, motor skills, spatial skills, whereas girl toys are much more geared toward perspective-taking and communication and empathy, right? Dolls and tea sets and those kinds of things. So it's not that it's bad to provide your kids with toys that are stereotypical of their gender. It's that we want to broaden those so that they have a range of like developmental opportunities. The same is true of household work and responsibilities, like Dr. Gibby was saying, right? We want, we want our girls to be able to do yard work and to fix things around the home just as much as it's important for them to learn how to cook and do dishes, but the same should be said of our boys. We want them to know how to fix things, yes, but also it's important for them to learn how to take care of the baby. It's important for them to learn how to cook their own food the same can be said of emotions. We see that in, in the home, when we parent around emotions, parents use emotion words differently with their boys and their girls. And that leads to different emotive experiences for boys and girls growing up. They tend to be more diverse and more colorful in their emotion language with their girls and, and, a, and a lot less so with their boys. Research has shown that when kids are five years old, there's already a massive gender difference in the emotion labels and words that kids are using boys being much less than girls. They, they have a much like less diverse library of emotion words at their disposal by the time they're five years old. We think because of how parents and media and other socializing factors are influencing that. So it's not that gender stereotype things are necessarily bad. It's the focus on that's what's for me and only that's, that's only what's for me, right? 
it's broadening those experiences adds value to a home, whether it's play, whether it's work, whether it's our emotional experiences or anything like that. So yeah. that reminds me a lot of the it's not inaccurate, it's incomplete. Right. We're not like dismissing this whole thing, but we're broadening it out and saying maybe that's not the only thing there. Also, is there research? This is what I assume is true, that although boys only have they have fewer words to describe their emotions. That does not mean that they aren't feeling those emotions, Correct. experiencing yeah. them. Correct. There's not gender differences there. So instead, it's just right. girls have tools and, and a way to label those and boys are just not given those resources. Yeah. You, yeah. That's an accurate description. And kids can even articulate that by the time they're seven years old. They can right? girls know that their parents don't like it when their brothers are sad or when their brothers are vulnerable. Right. So they kids can articulate the gender difference, too that sometimes parents don't realize that they're doing because they're following a familiar script. So make sure to give your boys chores, and then if they cry about it, just hug them. Our big two takeaways. Yeah. <laughs> and do the same with girls, sure. I think there's concern, too, like some parents don't want to give, for example, there's research where parents don't want to give their boys a doll because they think that it will lead to questions about gender identity or sexual orientation. There's no research or no data to support those fears or those conclusions. But there is data to show and support that when we withhold those opportunities, we're, we're narrowing the developmental skill set that our kids are able to, to develop. And we want all children, regardless of their gender, to have the same abilities to succeed in education, in relationships, in life. And so it's, it's about the broadening of their experiences, not so much more than anything, right? It's not that we want to avoid gender stereotype play. It's that we want to broaden it so it's just play of all kinds. You are so much more familiar with this research than I am, so correct me if I say something wrong. But um, I do know that there has been research that parents are much more willing to give their daughters boy toys than their boys' girl mm -hmm. toys. Yeah. And, and just thinking through the implications of what that means of, again, are girls getting set up to success in a way that boys aren't? And what does this mean? And, and also thinking through, um, uh, several gender scholars have thought this through in terms of what does this mean about how we value masculinity versus femininity? And which one do we like less? And which one are we more scared of? And what does that mean? Is there part of a, is there a next step coming where we just really value um, femininity as it stereotypically has been mm -hmm. instead of it being undervalued? And the work that women have historically been doing, can we value that work somehow? Because right now we, we don't. And we even have studies on that in terms of Jobs that are labeled more as feminine jobs, like caregiving for uh, any age, right? Elderly or children, leading, things like that. Like if you look at how we pay those positions versus things that are more masculine, scholars have thought through that too of if we conceptualize how we value something by how much money we're willing to give it, then yes, we would say that femininity is really undervalued. And what does that mean? And what does that mean for boys who aren't getting these skills and aren't getting these resources? And then what does that mean for them when they are men and having romantic relationships? Yeah, nothing to correct there. All well said. <laughs> yeah, parents are a lot more hesitant to let their boys cross those boundaries because of the higher valuing of masculine-type qualities and interests broadly. But that also narrows their experience a lot more than, than girls in certain areas, right? Yeah, but and I know you think this because I've seen your slides and we've talked about it too. One thing, one way to think about this too is, right, if we think about Christ and the attributes mm. he had, and he is this perfect example of both femininity, healthy femininity, and this perfect example of healthy masculinity, not in the ways that the world defines it, meaning without all these kind of unhealthy attributes, but Christ was such a good leader and was bold and um, was smart 
and had logic at times, right? But he, you cannot find another example of someone being more sensitive, willing to feel, and willing to hear how others felt. And we are all asked to develop all of those attributes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the way that I like to think about it and the way I express it to my students in class is that the world has taken traits that are all good and important and labeled some of them as masculine and some of them as feminine. And the Savior has incorporated all of those, showing us that that is like by the way to strive to be. So what that I think helps us to do is to con- like we honor the identities of men and women while also understanding that there are very shallow and surface level distinctions between the sexes that our world has defi- right dividing those traits up. So if we can see past those familiar but very shallow scripts, a world of possibilities opens up to our children and to us in our relationships, gives us more tools with, to work with and succeed in our family lives. And yeah. And one way I've thought about this too is I don't, we have not ever been told directly from prophets or, or uh, through ancient prophets or modern prophets of like, these are the attributes that are sacred to women and these are the ones sacred to men. So there's actually a lot of revelation to come about that and a lot of um, gray area. And I think sometimes when we learn truths like, um, sex is eternal. I mean, that's what it says in the family uh, proclamation. It says gender, but Dallin H. Oaks clarified that they meant sex there, uh, meaning biological differences that are assigned at birth. It, it's eternal and it's important, right? It's really sacred. There's something sacred there. And I think sometimes we as people hear, oh, it's important, so we must make it really big, right? It can only possibly be important if that means that like men are from Mars and women are from Venus and we are total opposites and there's no overlap. But then we have all this doctrine of like small and simple things, like great things come mm. to pass and small things are really sacred and subtle things are really sacred. And I think about this a lot with gender. I do not have the answers and I would never proclaim to. But one way I think about it is I think that there is a chance, especially because both men and women were asked to become like Christ. Women weren't given another example. I mean, they right, were not be told to become like Mary or anyone else. We we're told to become like Christ. I think there's a chance that our gender differences are smaller than the world gives them credit for and that that doesn't make them any less important. Yeah. We'll find out all together one day. <laughs> I could be wrong. Wrong I mean, about things all I the mean, time. The data show that there are some pronounced sex differences, but well over 80% are considered quite small to negligible. Doesn't mean that they don't matter. Doesn't mean that they're not important. We could keep talking forever and ever, and I would just keep listening, but... Would you both just share maybe one piece of advice for our listeners going forward as we wrap up? Or if they're looking for more information on this topic, where where should we go? Where would you send us? Well, there are so many wonderful books that have been written about gender from all sorts of perspectives. So it's hard to know where to sense when to start. But I would just say if there are podcasts that talk about this or books... Anything we can do to to broaden our perspective about this, I think, is worthwhile. Whether you end up agreeing with it or not, I think just being in the space to be able to ask those questions is a good idea. And yeah, I guess my advice would be be really open to personal revelation here and be flexible and instead of and be humble, be flexible and humble that, that there's probably a lot more to learn here and, and you might not have all the answers right now. And I think there's something so sacred and meaningful about being in that spot and being willing to learn in those ways. Yeah, I think just echoing what Dr. Gibby said about just being able to be flexible and seeking seeking revelation on these topics that are personal, right? We're not seeking revelation for the church. We're not I mean, there are people who are doing that, but that's not us. 
seeking revelation for their own personal families and their own personal relationships, and then honoring that everyone can do that themselves and and receive different revelation from you. A lot of these gendered ways of doing things are are historically based, and the world changes. And what that means is that like a lot of the familiar ways of doing things and that we saw our parents doing things, some may still be good and valuable. A lot of others might not help us in our situations. And so we should be able to be open to receiving revelation that doesn't look like what we thought it was going to look like based on how we've traditionally appraised what it means to do gender in our world. We honor the distinctions between men and women and we honor the identities of men and women, but there's a lot of flexibility potentially in how those can play out between couples and in families. And I think just being aware of that is step one. I've learned so, so much. Thank you both again for teaching us so well and for sharing all your knowledge with our listeners. We really appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much.